me what the project is. Well, then he left. I must say, it really was so exhausting. Part has been working to rule since we came there. He's done absolutely nothing to help me. Whatever. He's just detached himself, and insofar as he's said anything, it's been completely unhelpful. And he doesn't even pretend to be pleased if I get my way, and uh, he's always absolutely accommodated to the idea that I'll lose. And I think it all began when he said to me, are you seriously going to try and implement your programme? And I said, yes, that was way back in March. Later, after I'd left the department, Sir Anthony Part appeared on television and, in effect, confirmed my assessment of his role. One of the causes of tension with the permanent secretary arose over the exact relationship between the department, including Roy Williams, who ran my private office, and my advisers, who had quite different tasks to perform, since the advisers had been appointed specifically to assist me over the whole range of my political work. Monday, the 21st of October. I went into the office after lunch and I had a meeting with Secretary about advisers. Um, Sir Anthony Park treats me like a consultant psychiatrist who's got a particularly dangerous um, patient and uh, I expect that at any moment he'll um, ring a bell and a very big, fat male nurse in a white jacket will come and give me an injection because uh, he obviously is very nervous of me and doesn't really understand what I'm saying. On advisers, he um, raised a number of things. He said he would consider my application for a salary of uh, 6500 for the two Francis. Um, but, of course, it would be a wage increase contrary to the guidelines. So I said, not at all. It would be regrading them as assistant secretaries. Well, then he said, we're considering in the civil service what their status should be. Should they be civil servants or not? Uh, he then raised all sorts of difficulties about uh, the effect of having advisers on the role of the private secretary. Private secretaries would expect to be consulted about everything. Well, I said I keep Roy fully informed as to my thinking, but uh, there are some things I feel I would be correcting him if I took him into details of party work. Well, he said that was always what private secretaries used to do. Well, Roy uh, Williams interrupted and said, look, this is quite theoretical, it's working very well. <coughs> and so it is. Um, then he went on to complain about Francis Morel and Francis Cripps going up to Newcastle and seeing the shop stewards without officials being present. Of course, forgetting that they are officials. Most amusing. Friday the 25th of October, um, Secretary came to see me and we had a long talk. And we discussed various things, but what it really came down to was that he was unhappy about the relations between me and certain civil servants. When I said, Secretary, I don't want to embarrass them in any way, but I must tell you frankly that uh, officials uh, just put up barrier after barrier after barrier when they know quite well now that I'm trying to find new criteria. And if they don't believe that worker enthusiasm is worth anything, for example, in a proposed workers' cooperative, then why don't they say... Uh, well, let's pretend it's worth 5% and rework the figures on that basis. Try and help me instead of simply obstructing and stopping and being difficult. And I said, I feel as if I'm swimming up Niagara Falls all the time. It's very exhausting for me too. Well, then he said officials had also been very shocked indeed that I had uh, um, described the planning agreements as uh, an extension of... Uh, collective bargaining to bargaining for power and he had noted the words down at the time and I said I'm very sorry but 
What did you think the fundamental and irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power was all about if it wasn't this? I said, I've made endless speeches about this over the years, and you must take them seriously. What I'm trying to do is to take the enormous power of the trade union movement and to harness it to productive effort. The permanent secretary, Sir Anthony Part, he is 59 and the longest serving permanent secretary in Whitehall. He has worked in four departments of state and his tussles with Tony Benn in industry were legendary at Westminster. Some of the uh, policies that he was suggesting were pretty radical, but uh, we slogged it out between us. What's your style of slogging? Well, I would first of all try and persuade him that he was wrong, and if I thought I wasn't getting anywhere, I'd try something a bit harder, and we'd really start hitting each other verbally across the table. How, how hard would you hit him? Oh, quite hard. Quite hard. And, uh, you know, I would say that's bloody nonsense. And he would say, well, that's the way I'm going to have it. And I said, all right, you're the Secretary of State, if that's the way you want it, you have it that way. Well, then he said, uh, well, Minister, Secretary of State, the problem is that... Uh, you trying to proceed with seven league boots and we think you've got to go more slowly when i said uh, maybe seven league boots but i've been in the department for seven months and i'm not aware of having done anything made any progress at all i've spent no money got no legislation through uh, and uh, i'm trying to get some indication that things are moving at all well then he said other officials have felt that i was very difficult to work with and although they were absolutely loyal to me in interdepartmental discussions, uh, officials in other departments uh, said uh, on occasions, your minister's gone completely off his rocker on this one. When I said maybe that's so, but uh, my view is perfectly straightforward. I try to say the same thing at Labour conferences and in Parliament and in the department, and I'm not so sure that uh, these ideas are very absurd. Of course, I'm in a minority in the cabinet. Ah, well, he said, uh, you're thought of as a devious minister who uh, mobilizes uh, people outside in support of your view in the cabinet. Well, I said, that's what it's all about. Of course I do. Of course I go to where the support is, which is largely in the trade union movement. But I said, I'm not devious. I do it all through the office phone. Roy Williams knows what I do. And uh, that's the uh, position. There's no secrecy about it. That's the way in which I actually work. Well, he said, uh, you know why I came to this department, don't you? And I said, no. Well, he said it was because Sir Richard Powell, the former permanent secretary, couldn't get on with the minister. And I came, well, I said, I depend upon you entirely. You built up the Department of Trade and Industry into a massive department. You handled the three-day week with such administrative skill. And now we've got to get this new policy through, and I rely on you entirely. And then secretary went off. He really is a, an impossible man. Of course, I would get rid of him if I could. But I know if I tried, I couldn't. But Roy Williams uh, said it was quite untrue to say that all officials found me difficult to work with. And there were a lot of them who were extremely attracted by the ideas and loyal to the ideas. And uh, he thought Secretary was speaking more for himself and that it had all been summed up in his bit at the end about uh, ministers who couldn't get on with their permanent officials. And whether he was threatening he was going to resign or not, I don't know. But there was a sort of vague hint of warning in it. Um, then finally, I later, about quarter past eight, it was so late and I had two boxes, so I got in the car, drove home, and Ron talk, brought me to Stansgate about 11. Very nice to get away, and Carol and there with Joshua, and uh, I went to bed. Do 
Towards the very end of my period as industry secretary, before Harold Wilson reshuffled me, I recorded in my diary the underlying problem that faced anyone trying to implement the Labour manifesto on which we had been elected. Unhappily, some of this opposition came from inside the Labour cabinet itself. Wednesday, the 26th of February, Joe Ashton came in, we had a talk. Um, then uh, Francis and Francis and I debriefed them on what had happened, and, uh, and we all went and had a meal in the cafeteria. Joe Ashton said there are only two sorts of people who can defeat civil service. One is the public school boys, and the other are the Arthur Scargills. Well, I said, I don't think anybody can beat them. You've just got to have the trade union movement with you, and it's a combination of external pressure and a bit of skill inside, and you're home dry. And, of course, I do now see the whole thing in terms of class. This is a point I made when I talked to the Financial Times at lunch. I've been awfully slow to see it. But it's the only way you can make sense of any of these problems, namely that uh, the civil service is defending the class interests of owners and professional people, and the unions are pressing for change, and uh, industrialists don't worry a bit about government intervention. They're not a bit worried about it. What they're worried about is the thought that there might be more power for their trade unions. So it is the next round of the Industrial Relations Act, and whereas they're trying to clamp on the unions, we're trying to liberate the unions. And in the cabinet, it's the Tony Crosslands and the Jim Callahans and the Roy Jenkinses and the Dennis Healy's and Harold Wilson's who hate the idea of the unions having a say. And uh, what I'm doing is um, working with the unions and for the unions. And now I see that. I don't have the same hesitations and doubts that I used to have about working out um, what's what. Well, then I went and voted with a heavy heart, but I've got so many battles on the plate. You can't do more than that. Well, it's now ten past two in the morning, and I'm absolutely exhausted. Uh, by the work, but I must do the diary at night because I do think that is the most important contribution that I'm making in the world is not the battles, the trade unions.